Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. see you all this morning. Let's begin with a quick announcement. Micah and Tom and Jeff and I met Friday night. What we discussed on Friday night was the fact that homecoming time is right around the corner. It's early April. We have not done a full-fledged homecoming weekend since COVID. And so Jeff was asking do you think we should do that this year? Should we announce it to the internet, which is why I'm saying it now with the microphone on? Now, granted, right now the airlines are a little spotty, and right now gasoline's a little more expensive than it was in years past. But if anyone out there on the internet is interested in joining us for that weekend, Let us know, and we will plan something. We don't know if it's going to be exactly like what we did for those 15 years that we did homecoming, but we're going to do something that weekend. And we know, of course, that it's going to be our communion Sunday, so we know that's happening Sunday morning. What's going to happen Saturday afternoon and Saturday evening and the potluck after Sunday, that's all a jump ball. But we know this, if you come here from out of town, we'll feed you. So if you're interested in homecoming, let me know. Drop me an email. Tell me on Facebook. Hit me up on some form of social media and let me know if you'd be interested in coming. We will be here either way. The size of the celebration and how many days it takes will be dependent on how many people come in from out of town. There, did I cover that right, Micah? Okay, good. 
Let's start this morning with a big theological concept. Are you familiar with the term progressive revelation? Do you know what that means? People use that terminology of progressive revelation to mean several different things, and so I'm going to define my terminology this morning so that you can understand how progressive revelation works within the Bible. Sometimes people use that phrase as a reference to the fact that we as Christian people, as we become more and more familiar with what God has revealed to us, we come to greater and greater faith and confidence in God to carry us through our lives. And so that is sometimes referred to as progressive sanctification or progressive revelation. That's not what I mean when I say progressive revelation. I'm talking from a biblical standpoint that if you read the theology that is developed early on in the Bible, it is not as fleshed out as the theology you find later in the Bible. In other words, over the course of history, progressively, God has revealed more and more of himself, of his divine plan of redemption, and of his determination for the future and why the history of mankind exists. So if I was going to give you an example, I would say that Abraham, even though he was willing to sacrifice his son, he didn't know limited atonement. He didn't know God's entire plan for Christ coming to the planet for the redemption of sins and the ultimate glorification of Christ. That was not all revealed to him. Instead, what was revealed to him at that moment was sacrifice your son. And he obediently followed in what God had told him. And so we can go back and read that event and we see the religious significance of that event, but we only know it because we know the end of the story. We have more revelation of God's plan. We have more knowledge of all that than Abraham did. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so that is what is known as progressive revelation. In other words, as you read the Bible progressively and historically, you learn more and more about what God is doing. Are you with me so far? Yes. Because I'm setting you up, just so you know. <laughs> if you read John 5, Jesus speaking, he talks about the judgment to come. And what he says is, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs, all those who are dead, will hear his voice and will come forth. They will come out of those tombs. Jesus refers to that coming out of the tombs as a resurrection. Those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life and those who committed the evil to the resurrection of judgment. Okay, this would be something that Jesus would be the subject matter expert on. He knows judgment is coming and that that judgment is going to go well for the people who have done good. It's going to go badly for those who have done evil. That is one of the bedrock essential concepts of the entire Bible. God will eventually set all things right, and there will be a judgment of the just and the unjust. If you've read your Bible and you don't get that concept, go back and satisfy that first, or you're not going to understand most of the rest of the Bible, or why Christ is so significant, or what the importance of the death on the cross was. It all comes down to judgment. It all comes down to the fact that a judgment is coming, and when Christ was on the planet, he said, I'm the judge. God's going to judge everybody, but he gave all that judgment to me because I am the son of man, because I have become human, because I can empathize with your human fleshly condition. Therefore, I'm going to be the one who is the judge. Nobody's going to be able to say, you don't know what it's like because 
I actually have been flesh and blood. I do know what it's like. Therefore, God has given judgment to me. But when he described the judgment, it sounds for all the world like he was putting both of those judgments in the same moment because he said, there's going to be a time when those who are in the tombs are going to hear his voice and they will come forth those who did good to the resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to the resurrection of judgment. If that's all you knew, you would say those two resurrections are concurrent. You would say those two resurrections happen at the same time. But when you get to Revelation 20, which is where we are this morning, by the way, if you want to open to Revelation 20, In Revelation 20, what we read is that those two resurrections and those two judgments do exist, but they're separated by a thousand years. So then you have to ask yourself, am I going to understand the entirety of the biblical teaching to be saying that the first resurrection and the second resurrection are separated by a thousand years, Or am I going to read about that thousand years and say, yes, but Jesus said that they both happen apparently simultaneously. This is where progressive revelation kicks in. Because Jesus said there's going to be two resurrections, the just and the unjust. And then later it was revealed to John as we progress down this continual revelation of God and his future plans, we find out that, yes, there is a resurrection to life and there is a resurrection to death. There is a judgment of the just and the unjust, except they are separated by a thousand years. I prefer to read the Bible in that progressive fashion where what Jesus said is totally encompassed in what John wrote. John just gave us additional information, hence progressive revelation. What I don't do is read the thousand years of Revelation 20 and then go backwards to previous revelations and negate the later revelation because of what the previous revelation said. Does that make sense? Yes. Mm -hmm. To some of you, you may be wondering, gee, Jim, why are you pounding away at this? Well, because online, you will hear a lot of people negating the thousand years of Revelation 20 on the basis of what Jesus said in John 5. And so it's necessary to recognize that what Jesus said and what John said in Revelation 20 are the same thing. Yes, there's going to be a judgment and a resurrection of the just and the unjust. The additional piece of information is they're separated from each other. So you either have to say, well, The entirety of the biblical revelation from a progressive standpoint tells us this additional information. So now I believe that these two resurrections are separated by a thousand years because that's what the Bible says. Or you negate a part of what the Bible says in order to say, well, the previous resurrection tells me everything I'm going to believe and I refuse to believe the later information. If you don't know this argument, well, then God bless you. You just haven't spent any time on the Internet, and I I wish I was like you. I wish I had not spent so much time on the Internet listening to people argue about these points. So let's start reading. Revelation 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abusos which means no bottom. It means depthless. So we refer to it sometimes as the bottomless pit. And there was an angel coming down from heaven who had the key to the abyss, to the bottomless pit, and he had a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old. We talked about much of that last week. And over the course of getting into this portion of Revelation, I've been purposefully going slow and trying to define all of this terminology so that you understand how well it all fits together. That serpent of old 
The reason he is referred to as of old is because he appears right at the very beginning of the book of Genesis. God creates a garden and Adam and Eve, and then we read that the serpent was there among them. In fact, Genesis 3.1 starts, now the serpent was more crafty. King James says he was more subtle than all the other beasts of the field which the Lord had made. And because he was a subtle, crafty creature, he is the one who enticed Eve to eat of the fruit that God said, you can eat anything in the garden, but you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The reason that Eve did eat from it was because it was Satan himself who tempted her in the form of a serpent. And so here we are at the end of the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation 20, making reference to something that happened in Genesis 3. So the entirety of the Bible between those two bookends has to do with our redemption, just as Steve said a few moments ago, our redemption from that miry clay, our redemption from the pit that we were dug out of, our redemption from being ruled by the prince of the power of the air, our redemption away from our own flesh, our own sinfulness, our own depravity. To God, that is the theme of the entire Bible, pretty much from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20. So you can see why John would refer to him by the terminology that the angel laid hold on the dragon and then calls him that serpent of old, who is the diabolos, the divider, the devil, and Satan. What does the word Satan mean in the Hebrew? Accuser. Because he is the accuser of the brethren, up there day and night accusing us in the high court of heaven. And as I have often pointed out, if you're anything like me, and I hope you're not, When Satan accuses me before the throne of God, he's usually right. He's usually got me dead to rights. That's why it's so important that John also writes that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That word is our lawyer, our defender, the one who is pleading our case is in the high court of heaven, we have this advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And the reason we need the constant advocate is because we have the constant accuser. And the accuser is usually right. Which means that your justification can never be based on what you did. Because what you did is the grounds on which the accuser is accusing you. And he's right. Instead, your righteousness, your justification, has to be based on something external to you. And that is why Christ, the one who sacrificed himself, who spilled his blood on your behalf for the redemption of all your sin, can be your completely adequate advocate And can stand before God and say, yes, he did that. But you know what I did? I gave my life. I died for that person. I redeemed that person. I shed my blood for that person. So it's no longer about your works, your actions, your sin, your flesh. It's about what Christ did in redeeming you. You are nothing but a recipient of astounding grace. And that one who gave you that astounding grace is your lawyer in the high court of heaven. It just doesn't get better than that. As I like to point out, my attorney is the judge's son, so he has an in into his father's chamber. And he's pleading our case constantly, and his case is not based on, yeah, but he's a pretty good guy. Yeah, but he did some good things. Instead, the way he pleads our case is, He belongs to me. I saved him. And so Satan and the devil gets bound and cast away for a thousand years. We looked at that pretty extensively last week. Saw that that is in league with the Old Testament prophets and how they say that a day is coming 
where Satan and his minions are going to be bound in darkness until the time of their judgment. We're going to see that judgment this morning. They threw him into the bottomless pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer. I made this point last week, but I'm going to make it again because I want to put emphasis on this. Notice that the thing, the person that was bound and put into the abyss and sealed is Satan himself. Not just his activity, not just his influence, not just his rulership over this world, but he himself is the one who is put into the abyss. Therefore, he can no longer go about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Therefore, he can no longer befuddle the nations. He can no longer confuse the message of Christ. He can no longer deceive the nations. And what we saw last week was that the prophets, Isaiah, even Zechariah, talked about how the nations currently have a veil over them how they are not able to understand the truth of God because the prince of the power of the air is still very active and he is still blinding the eyes of those who cannot see the truth. But the day is coming when he himself is going to be bound by God, placed into the abyss, and then a seal put on it. So not only is he in chains, but then he's locked in the bottomless pit and then he's sealed on top of that. So he is put away for the thousand years until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Turn, if you would, for a moment. Keep your finger right there. And turn to Daniel 7 for a moment as we continue to look at these Old Testament prophecies that have to do with the things that are unfolding in the book of Revelation. Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to start reading at verse 9. This is the vision that Daniel saw, and it is very, very similar to what John saw. The difference between them is progressive revelation. Starting in Daniel 7, verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who is the Ancient of Days? God. God himself. Well done, you. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. These are thrones that are set up for the time of judgment. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were a burning fire. This is the same chariot-type throne that Ezekiel saw. When Ezekiel was by the river Chebar and he saw God, and God was riding on wheels that were full of eyes and sitting on his throne with the, the rainbows, the emerald rainbow behind it. It's the same vision that Ezekiel saw. It's the same kind of vision that explains God as being surrounded by myriads of angels who are doing his bidding constantly and crying out that he is holy, holy, holy. And then he has this throne that is also a chariot. His throne is ablaze with fire, with flames, and its wheels were like burning fire. And a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. If that sounds familiar, you should know it from last week when we talked about the differences between Kiliad and Murios. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him, and the court sat And the books were opened. You're going to find in the book of Revelation that that same description is given. 
that the books were open. But what John tells us that Daniel doesn't is that one of those books is the book of life. And that all men are judged out of the things that are in the books. In other words, there is a a book in heaven that is keeping track of your life, of your deeds, and you are one day going to be judged out of the things that are written in those books. Well, Daniel saw the same thing. The court sat, and the books were opened. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which that little horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the fire. By the way, I think I could mention there's also a sequence here, like we talked about last week. And the sequence is this judgment is happening before the establishment of the kingdom. Verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, Their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. That's exactly the sequence that we've seen so far in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 19, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. In chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet already are. Same sequence happening here. Verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. This is so very important. Daniel uses this particular nomenclature, Son of Man, to identify the Son of God. Why would he do that? Because he is the God-man. He is fully God and he is fully man. And therefore he can be the perfect high priest. Because we don't have a high priest who cannot feel our infirmities, says the writer of the book of Hebrews. Instead we have a perfect high priest who knows what it is to be hungry. What it is to be tired. What it is to feel pain. What it is to give himself up to God and take the wrath of God. This is someone who can say, I know, I know, been there, done that. That makes him a perfect intercessor for us. That nomenclature, son of man, identifies him as the God-man all the way back here in Daniel. And then Jesus himself, as we already read in John 5, refers to himself as the son of man because he is the son of man. So that nomenclature is very important. Don't miss that Jesus himself took that prophetic language that Daniel used and applied it to himself and said, I am that son of man. Because Daniel said, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And then all the peoples, all the nation, and men of every language will serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed as opposed to all those previous kingdoms, all those previous beasts, all the kingdoms of the world that had their short space of time that God allotted to them, and then they passed away. His kingdom is the one that is going to stand like a rock, that is not going to pass away, that is going to continue on into eternity. Again, notice the sequence. First, there's judgment, and there's the establishment of the kingdom. Okay, so with that as background, let's go back to Revelation 20 because what we're seeing in this portion of Revelation 20 is the fulfillment of the very thing that Daniel saw and wrote about. Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. It's exactly what Daniel said. So he is beginning to see and describe the very event that Daniel foretold. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. 
I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Wow is right. It's the right commentary for that moment, by the way. Wow. Now, I believe this is a particular group of people. I don't believe this is all saints of all time because these are people who are particularly identified as having not received the mark of the beast in their right hand or forehead. And therefore, they have to be a particular group of people. And they resurrect and they reign with Christ for a thousand years because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And they did not worship the beast or his image. That means they had to have had the opportunity to worship the beast and his image. They didn't take the mark in their right hand to their forehead, which means they had to have been living at a time when that was an opportunity to do that. So I believe this is a particular group of people But then verse 5 says, and the rest of the dead. Okay, so now we got to kind of figure out categories. What we have before us is we have the church of Jesus Christ who have been taken off the planet, taken to the marriage supper of the Lamb in chapter 19. When Christ returns to the planet in chapter 19, He comes back with the saints who were wearing the white robes that they received at the marriage supper of the Lamb in chapter 19. So that's that group of people. That's the church. Then there is the period of time when Antichrist is on the planet, during which time he is engaged in self-worship. He has set up an image of himself in the temple, showing himself that he is God. That's Paul's language. And there are going to be people on the planet who are going to bow and worship and take the mark, but there are going to be some who do not, and as a consequence, lose their heads. So that's those two groups. Then there's the group of people, the evil people, the unchristian people, the unsaved people. They are the group that are called the rest of the dead. So you've got the church, you've got the martyrs, and you've got the rest of the dead. And what happened with them? The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And then he says, this is the first resurrection. Now we got to talk about that word resurrection, and we're going to talk about it a lot this morning. Because there is, again, a tremendous amount of controversy out there about this first resurrection and the second resurrection. Jesus said in John 5 that there would be a time when everybody would hear his voice, that they would be raised from the dead, some to the judgment of the just, some to the judgment of the evil. So everybody eventually is going to stand and be judged. You're either going to be judged by the finished work of Christ and his grace, or you're going to be judged on the basis of you, your works, your evil heart, your evil intentions. You don't want to be there for that. According to John, those two events, those two resurrections, are separated by a thousand years. And so, folk who do not hold to a premillennial scheme, I hope you all know what I mean by that now, Folk who hold to other schemes will say that first resurrection that is mentioned there in Revelation 20, that's not an actual resurrection from the dead. What it is, is what happens to you when you die. When a saint dies and he goes to heaven, he becomes spiritually completed, and that's what's being described here in Revelation 20. The first resurrection is that moment when you die and your soul goes to heaven. Or they will tell you that the first resurrection mentioned here is that moment when you come to life in Christ, 
when you come to realize who Christ is, that moment of being born again, being quickened by the Spirit of God, is the first resurrection. Either of those arguments denies basic language, basic definition, because the word resurrection that's being used here is used over and over again in contrast to nekros. Now, you probably can figure out what the Greek word nekros means. Dead. 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 It means dead. Stone cold, bodily, physically dead. And so if you've got stone cold, physically, bodily dead, and then you've got the word Jesus uses for live again is the word zao, which means actual life. Physical life, I'm alive. The contrast is between physically dead and physically alive. And then uses the word resurrection. And the word resurrection is the Greek word anastasis. Ana, again. Stasis is the word for stand up. So stand up again is the word resurrection. So put those pieces together. You've got people who are necros, dead, physically dead, dead. And you've got people who come to life, zao, and the way that happens is they stand up again. Is there any way to take those words and draw from it that what that means is when people die, they go to heaven? Well, the answer is no. Is there any way to say that what that means is That's the moment in which you come to Christ and you're born again, you're regenerated. That's what it means. No, because the words are all very physical words. Physical dead, physical life, physical standing up again. And I'm going to prove to you this morning for the balance of the morning, really, that that's the only way that the word anastasis is used all the way through the New Testament. Anastasis only means one thing. It always means... Resurrection, stand up again. You were dead, and now you're alive again. And it never means anything but that. Now, before we do that, as long as we're here in Revelation 5, look over uh, in the same chapter, Revelation 20. Go down to verse 11, because it's going to fill in some of the blanks of what we just read from chapter 20, verse 4. I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Continue in verse 11, and I saw a great white throne. And him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and the heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Sound familiar? Same thing Daniel predicted. So this is that actual event, that judgment taking place. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So all the rest of the dead, those are the unbelieving dead, All of them were brought to life and judged according to the things that were written down about them and were told specifically what those things were. It was their deeds. According to their deeds, according to their flesh, according to their depravity, that's how they are judged. You don't want to be at that judgment. Instead, you want to be found in the book of life. Earlier in the book of Revelation, the book of life was described to us as the Lamb's book of life since the foundation of the world. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a very predestinary phrase, but that's the sovereign God that we know from the whole rest of the Bible. He actually, before he did anything else, 
wrote names in his book of life, and those are the people for whom Christ died. Those are the people who Christ redeemed. Those are the people that are part of Christ's church. And it was determined by God before God did anything else. From the beginning, he wrote in a book, Luann Clothier. And the good news for us is, you don't read anywhere in the Bible where God has an eraser. Which means, despite yourself, despite your sinfulness, despite your evil, despite your stupid head and all the things that go through it, you can't separate yourself from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. That is a sure guarantee because it is God himself, the reputation of God himself, the plan of God himself from all eternity that is the underpinning and guarantee of your salvation. So that God gets all the glory. If he saved you on the basis of what you did, then you get some glory. It's to say, well, yeah, sure, God, you saved me, but dig me. You saw what I did. You saw how I acted. You saw how I lived. Of course you'd save me. Tom, maybe not so much, but me. Oh, Tom's agreeing way too much. Well, God is not going to share his glory with anybody. He's not going to share his glory with some other God. He's not going to share his glory with you. He's not going to allow you to walk up to him and say, slide over on that throne a little bit. I think I'll be sharing it with you right here with you because between you and me, You and me together got me saved. That kind of synergistic salvation does not exist in the Bible. And it is completely eradicated when you read that the names of the people who were saved were written down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Now that's a really big, difficult, expansive idea to get a hold of. And I know it rubs up against our flesh because we all are natural legalists and we all want to say, yeah, but I did something right. I contributed something. Well, if you contributed something, then we got to worship you. We got to say, well done you. You got you saved. But if you are everything the Bible says you are, If you are depraved, if you have a dark and wicked heart when God comes across you so that he has to take out your stony heart and give you a heart of flesh, if when he finds you, you are unbelieving, hateful, and an enemy of God, then what could be said of you that was so positive that God would save you? Nothing. That's why grace is such an important concept. Throughout the Bible, God saves by grace, kindness, unmerited favor, and he does that so that he gets all the glory. Remember, God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself, and the entirety of the Bible is about God glorifying himself. Therefore, he saves wretches like us, and he conforms us, and he changes us. And we're in that process of being changed and conformed to the image of his son. So that he is the firstborn of many brethren. And it's in that very language that Paul says, and that's why he predestined us. And that's where the golden chain of redemption comes in. Furthermore, those that he predestined, those are the ones he called. And the ones he called, those are the ones he justified. And the ones he justified, those are the ones he glorified. And you can't break that chain that goes from God decided in advance, predestined, to those of the people he particularly called, called to himself, called to Christ, to those of the people that he justified, to those of the very people that he ultimately glorified. The language of the Bible is very, very consistent. It is God who does all the saving, and he does that because your names are already written down, guaranteeing your salvation, and they're written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That would have been a good place for a hallelujah. I'm just saying. All right, so we're continuing here in Revelation. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the Book of Life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell, Hades, gave up the dead that were in them. And they were all judged 
every one of them according to their deeds. Now do you see why it's so important that Paul talks so extensively, that John talks so extensively, that Jesus talks so extensively about resurrection and why you want to be part of the first resurrection because then you're not in the sea or in Hades. You're not in the grave. You are resurrected up to eternal life. And all those, the rest of the dead who are still in their graves are the ones who were brought up and judged according to their deeds. And you don't want to be judged according to your deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Okay, so what have we seen so far in Revelation 20? We've seen two of everything. You get this life, and then if you're in Christ... You get the resurrection, which is called the first resurrection, which is a resurrection to life. So you get life and then more life. Or if you're not in Christ, you're going to live your life, die, go to the grave, be resurrected and judged, lake of fire, which is called the second death. So you either get two lives or you get two deaths. Go with the first one. Option A is the better one. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, now we know what the book of life is. If anyone's name is not found in the Lamb's book of life since before the foundation of the world, he is thrown into the lake of fire. So it sounds like that book of life is very decisive. And it's written by God before the foundation of the world. Which means you didn't get a choice. You didn't choose Jesus. You didn't make him your Lord and Savior. You didn't get you saved. He's the Savior. He saved you. And he demonstrated it by writing down your name before the foundation of the world. That, by the way, is a God I can worship. That's a God I can get down on my face and say, you are my God. You are in charge. And you are in charge of everything that you've done. Let's see if I can find an example. Jeff here. That's an entire sentence right there. (laughs) Jeff's here. Jeff is a coder. He, He sits at his computer and he writes code. When you sit down to start typing, Jeff, Do you already have a pretty firm concept of what the end result is going to be in your head? Or are you just randomly typing? No, you're not randomly typing. You know what the end result is that you're headed for. I'm trying to make some code that will make my computer do this. Well, that's exactly like God. Before he created everything, before he, quote, unquote, wrote the code for everything, he decided what the end result was going to be. The end result was going to be the glorification of his son, who was going to be glorified through all eternity because of the grace that it took to save people who simply don't deserve it. That's what makes grace so amazing. That's what makes God so sovereign. And that's why he is worthy of all our worship, because he had a plan from the very beginning. I get very tired of hearing about this God who apparently didn't have a plan who just kind of created everything, spun the worlds into existence, sat back and went, well, let's see how this goes. That God isn't found anywhere in the Bible. The only God you find in the Bible determined what he was going to do from the beginning, and it even says so in the Bible, known unto God are all his ways from the beginning. He decided, he determined, and he is right now in the process of working out his divine plan. And if you get to be part of that divine plan in a positive way where your name is already written in the book, well, that is nothing but grace, 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 and grace. Get on your face. Worship that God because he deserves it. Amen. Okay, so let's spend the rest of the morning talking about This concept of resurrection, because this is just such an important concept. Paul's entire Christology is based on the resurrection of Christ. In fact, he goes so far to say, if there is no resurrection, then Christ is not resurrected. And therefore, we're still all in our sins. And we are, of all men, most miserable. Because we're going to stand before God and not have an advocate. 
not have a sacrifice, not have a redemption. So the resurrection of Christ is an essential thing. And you know what word is used over and over again to talk about the actual physical bodily resurrection of Christ? Anastasis, the exact same word that is used in Revelation 20 to say that we are going to be resurrected, physically resurrected. Let me give you some examples. Matthew twenty-two twenty-three 23 says that on that day, some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him. Okay, so what do they mean by resurrection right there? It's the word anastasis right there. They mean actual physical getting up again. They can't mean, well, there is no spiritual awakening. And they can't mean, well, there is no going to heaven when you die. The only thing they can be debating is whether people stand up again. Matthew twenty-two twenty-eight. In the resurrection, these are people who are uh, trying Jesus, questioning him, saying that there were several brothers who all, according to the law, married the same woman. So then in the resurrection, if there is a resurrection, then whose wife is she going to be? So in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all married her. Jesus' answer in verse 30 is, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? A phrase I absolutely adore because Jesus is referring to something that was written down. And yet he says, this is God speaking to you. So he makes a reference to the Old Testament scripture, says it is God speaking to you regarding the resurrection of the dead. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Okay, so in the resurrection, there's going to be no marriage or given in marriage. We're going to be like the angels of heaven. Can you, in that context, plug in the meaning of when you come to spiritual awakeness, there's no more marriage. That doesn't work. No, it's very specific. It's about the resurrection of those who were necros, those who were actually physically dead. I have so many examples. I'm going to have to move now. Luke 20, 35. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, the age to come, and the resurrection of the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. There's the contrast. The word anastasis is always used in contrast to necros, to death, physical death, because they are like the angels and the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Luke 14, starting at verse 13 And when you give a reception, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have any means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That's Jesus referring to this very thing that we're seeing in Revelation 20, the resurrection of the righteous, which is a separate thing from the resurrection of all the rest of them which happens a thousand years later at the time of their judgment when they are judged by their deeds out of the books and they are all thrown into the lake of fire. Those are two distinctly different events. John eleven twenty four. Jesus talking about physically dead Lazarus. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. She's talking about her physically dead brother and saying he's going to stand up again at that resurrection of the dead, because she believed the resurrection of the dead was coming. All I'm trying to prove to you is that anastasis all the way through the New Testament always means one thing, and it's always in contrast to physical death. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Is there any question about what he means there? In Acts 1.22, while they're choosing a new apostle, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that Jesus was taken up from us, 
one of these must become a witness with us of one particular thing, his resurrection, his standing up again, his coming back from the dead. Paul, making his argument in Acts 24, says, but this I admit to you, that according to the way which you call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. In other words, I believe everything in the Jewish scriptures. I believe everything in the Old Testament that has led me to a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So Jesus talked about it in John. Paul picks it up and uses it as part of his defense and claims that he believes it because of what the Old Testament says about it. Revelation 20 is just a continuation of that exact same thinking. Are you bored yet? No. Romans 1, 1 to 4, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, he is Jesus Christ our Lord. Later in chapter 6, Paul writes, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Okay, did Jesus actually die? Physically die? Three days, three nights in the grave, dead? Okay, well then we're going to become united with him in the likeness of his death. So certainly we will be in the likeness of his anastasis, his standing up again, his resurrection. Are you getting a feel for this? All I'm trying to prove is that when Revelation 20 says this is the first resurrection, that it is talking about a physical raising up of actual dead people, those people who have died in Christ, and the rest of the dead will not come to life until those thousand years have been completed because this is the first resurrection. First, protos, it is first in contrast with the last or the second or the ongoing. It is the first resurrection, not in all of history, not in all of time, because Jesus himself had a resurrection. Jesus himself did bring Lazarus out of the grave. Lazarus stood up again. And so it's not the first in time in history. It is the primary resurrection in contrast to the raising up of all the rest of the dead, which is referred to as the second death. And so the rest of the dead do not come to life until the thousand years are completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in that first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Here's what I can tell you. On the basis of what scripture tells us, on the basis of what the word of God plainly states, and by the way, so far in Revelation 20, have we bumped into any words or phraseology or sentences that are difficult to understand? No. All of the language is very plain. It's very clear. It's just hard for people to conceive of. And so they create other ideas and other approaches and allegorical interpretations, but the words say exactly what they say, and they use words that are used all the way through the rest of the New Testament. The language is not difficult. The definitions are not difficult. This is the very word of God, and taken at face value, what it says to you is there is a day coming when there is going to be a resurrection that is going to be referred to as the first resurrection, and blessed and holy are the people who take part in that first resurrection What they're going to discover is their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. I know that sounds very Calvinistic. 
I know that sounds very predestinarian, and it's also exactly what the Bible says. So stand toe-to-toe with what the Bible actually says, accept or reject it on the basis of what it does actually say, and recognize that this is the only God that you find anywhere in history, the only true and living God determined to glorify himself. And in so doing, he chose particular people and wrote their names down before the foundation of the world. And that's exactly what the Bible says. If you can run to Christ, run to Christ. If you can cast yourself entirely on him, do that. And what you will discover is that's because God chose you before the foundation of the world. And boy, you want to be part of that blessed and holy first resurrection group because the second death don't sound like fun. (laughs) That whole lake of fire thing, uh uh-uh, not me, not signing up for that. And yet Jesus said, straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few there are that find it. Broad is the way and wide is the gate that leads to death. And many there are that go in thereat. It's the many and the few. If you're among the few, that is God's grace to you. Worship him, praise him, thank him. Amen. I'm done. Jeff, it's on you. Steve, it's on you. Let's say blessed
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.